Welcome to Lost Levels Club. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. I have with me tonight, Sir Michael. Hello. And myself, Timothy. We're a book club for games. And today we are... Hurrah. Hurrah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was necessary. <laughs> so what are we covering today? Today, we are talking about TIS-100. And we've confirmed it's TIS-100 and not... TIS-100? <laughs> yes. Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I'm just going with it. No, we've watched a talk by Zach Barth, and he... He says TIS-100. Yes. I'm pretty so sure. TIS-100. Official. So rather than start with the game, we're going to start with the developer. Zachtronics. Who are famous for their programming puzzle games. And Mike, you've played a few. Quite a few. I think I've played all of the programming puzzle games. TIS 100 was actually the only one I hadn't played, and now I've played it. So I played Space Chem when it first came out. And Infinity Factory, Shenzhen IO, Opus Magnum, and Exapunks. So, for some reason, I didn't play TIS-100. I think it's because TIS-100 came out shortly after Infinity Factory, and I was already playing Infinity Factory. I did buy it, and then I bought and gifted a copy to you for some reason. Maybe just because I'm a nice person? I don't know. Were you were <laughs> planning this all along? <laughs> and then, yeah, I think I just took one look at it, after buying it, and I was like, I can't deal with this right now. Yeah, it's not the most inviting of games. But I've played it now. So, the programming puzzle games, I think they're now termed as Zack-likes. Like, I think they've spawned their own genre. I mean, he's not the only one who is making these programming puzzle games. There have been several other people who have made them, but I think... The Zachtronics programming puzzle games are generally the most famous. I mean, it's like one of those things where you don't necessarily have to have been the first to make a game in a genre to be considered the one that kind of started the genre. If that makes any sense at all. It does. Do you have an example? So, for example, the looter-shooter genre. Most people, I think consider Borderlands to be the prototypical example of that genre, but Hellgate London was a looter shooter that, you know, precedes Borderlands by two years. And there might be others too. They're just the two earliest examples I can think of. So let's say a bit more about these. I mean, why why? Why did why you... programming puzzle games? <laughs> yes. Because they're fun? I don't know. You know what? I, I do wonder if these games are fun to normal people. Or if they're only fun if you're a programmer. Because they must be quite intimidating. Especially, say, TIS-100. I mean, it looks horrifying. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> it pushed even me away. And I am a programmer. Yeah, I, I don't know. But personally, I find these games really fun. So... 
I really enjoyed Space Cam. I mean, Space Cam came out kind of in the indie renaissance when, you know, small teams or individuals were making games and they were becoming popular. So I think Zach Barth himself terms it like a post-Braid game. You know, Braid changed the industry in that it was a game made by basically one guy and it did incredibly well and you know off the back of that people were looking for other games that were like braid that were different or that had new ideas and yeah space chem was well very popular well very popular in relative terms i mean it it wasn't like triple a popular but in the indie space it did well it did well enough to make zach quit his job and make games full-time. I think Space Game is still my favourite of the Zack-like games. But then again, I haven't played it for many years, so maybe if I went back to it, I'd be like, what is this? I, I literally played Space Game for 60 hours, I think. I mean, it took me 50-plus hours to finish the main campaign. But there's a chance that Infinity Factory will become... Your favourite? Why? Because... Just, just curious. I, I thought you liked the idea of just building massive machines. I Yeah, okay. Infinity Factory, I really need to go back to. Because the recent Zack-like games have been released in early access. So I think some games, you know, they come out in early access and they kind of never leave early access. And early access is kind of just an excuse to say like, hey, we released this game, we want your money for it, and there might be bugs, but it's early access, so please excuse them. Whereas the, you know, these Zachtronics programming puzzle games, they put together a set of puzzles, they release basically a finished game, but they want to see how people react to it and then get some kind of community feedback or community like data, you know, about how people are solving the puzzles, how easy or how hard they find them. And then they release several major updates after that that add pretty much whole new campaigns sometimes. So I bought Infinity Factory at release. I completed it. There have been several major updates since, but I haven't actually played them. So I finished the game as it was at release, but there's quite a lot more game to play now, and I just haven't found the time to go back to it. Okay. And have you bought Liza? No love for Ironclad Tactics. No, I take it then. So the two non-programming puzzle games that Zatronics have released, Ironclad Tactics and Eliza. I've actually bought both. I haven't played either. And something I was surprised to hear was that TIS 100 actually did well. Yeah, I think they really didn't expect it to do well because it looks so unapproachable. I mean, it looks horrible. It's basically an ASCII user interface where, you know, they just use terminal characters to draw boxes and lines and stuff. So, yeah, it looks horrible. But it sold pretty well. It sold better than Ironclad Tactics. I think it was maybe comparable to Space Chem? I don't know. I mean, they had a much bigger reputation 
by this point, and they just come off the back of Infinifactory. So, actually, the other thing we should mention, Zaktronic's other claim to fame, is that they basically invented the blocky world sandbox genre, even though everyone thinks it was Minecraft. But the first game in that genre is actually Infiniminer. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I think Notch basically decompiled Infiniminer, figured out how it worked, and then wrote Minecraft. So, yeah, maybe that's a better example of the game that really invents the genre isn't necessarily the game that's, you know, thought of as being representative of it. Poor Zach. As well as he's done, he's not living in Beverly Hills in a house that he outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for. But he's doing better for it. <laughs> yeah, that's also probably true. <laughs> so, shall we, shall we move on to TIS-100 then? Yeah, let's talk about the game proper. Actually, one funny observation it's not that funny the game is made in unity do you know that even though it's a horrible clunky terminal interface it's actually made in unity It's using a 3d engine to render the game which also means that it's horrible on your battery life (laughs) like i was trying to play s100 on a plane and it was just eating my battery because obviously it's just you know having to use the 3d capabilities of the of the machine so yeah it's kind of funny it looks like it should run on you know like a 286 or something but actually it needs a freaking 3d accelerator jonathan blow would be appalled yeah there's no excuse you should be able to just draw the screen yourself so i guess zach bath is no jonathan blow but i still have a lot of respect for zach bath anyway anyway that's an aside Let's talk about the game. Let's talk about the actual game rather than what the game was made in. Yeah. So it's it's a programming puzzle game. And you're presented with a series of puzzles. And within each problem, you're presented with a grid of four by three nodes. And within each node, you can have some code. So you can apply basic coding logic. You can store data and move data between the nodes. But that's pretty much all you can do. Well, you're trying to give a layman's explanation of the game. Yes, I am. Because you're worried that I'm going to go off the deep end. I've tried to just give one more level of detail without becoming too technical. So each of the nodes is kind of like a computer in itself. So like often these programming puzzle games you're trying to write a program and the game runs your program. But each of the nodes in this grid, you type a program into each one of these separate nodes. And when you run the game, it kind of runs all of the nodes simultaneously. So the main thing that makes the game difficult is that you are severely limited in what each individual node could do. So, you know, the instruction set, like the, you know, the commands you have to program each node are relatively simple. But, you know, if you're a programmer, it's more than enough to do 
pretty much anything. So if you had unlimited space or more memory, it would be easy because you could just literally just write and write and write and write and turn out some long program that just does exactly what you want it to do. But each individual node can only hold 15 instructions and one or actually has two pieces of memory. So you can like store one number in a way that's easy to access and you can store one other number in a way that's really hard to access. So most of the challenge comes from trying to solve a puzzle with those constraints. You know, hardly any code in a single node and the nodes having to cooperate and pass data back and forth between themselves in order to have enough you know, computational power to actually do what you need to do. And and the things that you need to do start out quite simple. I mean, to begin with, you're just literally saying, pass a value that's input into one node to an output node somewhere else. Or later on, things like multiply two numbers, because there's no multiply command. There's just an add command and a subtract command. So you have to do something like pass in the two numbers that need to be multiplied and there's repeatedly add you know, and, and it gets progressively more and more complicated. So the later puzzles are mind-melting and horrific. So I mentioned that there's no story stroke law. I'm really shocked that you said this. I, I just don't understand why you said this. It, it, I guess I ever... focused on the puzzles. I, I read the manual and it, it gave me a hint of something there. And then... I really just focused on the puzzles. Actually, we should mention the manual too. The manual is itself a very interesting thing. So I think TIS-100 is actually kind of, you know, even within the realm of Zaktronic's programming puzzle games, it's kind of like the start of a series because TIS-100, to you know, these nodes and the limited assembly you can fit inside them. And then Shenzhen IO is kind of an evolution of the same idea. You're using pretty much the same programming language but building dsp chips and then exapunks is kind of the same thing again but it's kind of weird nanotechnology but the other thematic thing that connects them in addition to the programming language is that there's a physical manual so in both of those games if you bought the physical edition of the game they actually gave you like a binder with pages or like a printout you know like a physical thing and if you bought it on Steam, then the game comes with a PDF that you can just refer to on your other monitor or you can print it out. And in this game, the PDF is a manual for the TIS-100 and it hints at all sorts of funny stuff. So it's kind of like your Uncle Randy's copy of the manual and he's like annotated it. And, you know, it mentions things like, you know, no type t20 reserved you know any queries about this no type will be reported to the state security bureau or you know you can push f1 to look at instructions or push f2 to view the anti-tamper certification seal or something it's like what you know like there's all sorts of stuff in the manual that's kind of hinting at things in the game as well as obviously explaining the programming language that you have to use to solve the puzzles Sorry, to get back to the original point, the story and the lore. Yeah, there's story and lore in this game. So the premise of the game is that the TIS-100 is broken. There are corrupted segments and each of the puzzles is supposedly fixing 
a function of the TIS-100. So, you know, the puzzle will be named something like sequence sorter and it's, you know, a module that sorts things and you have to repair it. And then in the node grid, some of the nodes will be red and say, you know, corrupted. And you can click on a button that says debug and it will spit out a little bit of story. Oh. Did you never do this? No. What? Are you do you have no curiosity? This is I'm I'm just gobsmacked. I have I have a lot of focus. This is incredible. You never click the button. No. Wow. That's amazing. I <laughs> I'm I'm literally just staring and when my mouth is open, I'm making the shocked Pikachu face. Wow. Okay. Well, this explains why you thought there was no story or lore. Yes. So in every single puzzle, every single puzzle, well, okay, in pretty much every single puzzle, there will be some red corrupted nodes. And if you click on it, it will make a whirring noise and then print out a debug log. And the debug log is usually a message from your uncle Randy. And, and I think the very first one says, you know, can't find a pencil and paper. So this will do. Looks like I can store some notes in the memory here, blah, blah. And he types, you know, and he's typing little notes to himself and there's a date on them. Or at least there are dates on the earlier entries. Talking about how he is repairing the TIS-100 and what he thinks it's for and how it seems to be, well, weird. You know, like the architecture of it is not normal. It's like almost like it came from another universe. And then how as he gets more proficient at it, he understands it's quite elegant and, you know, it's just as good as a normal computer. You just have to think differently to, you know, use all these nodes together. And then eventually it gets kind of darker and weirder. And then, I don't know, are we doing spoilers for TIS-100? Yeah, we are. So spoilers for the story of TIS-100, or at least the first part of the story, because that's the only part I finished. But you're not playing it for the story. I'm playing it for the delightful puzzles. Well, you're playing it for the delightful puzzles. I was playing it for the story. Yeah, so he talks about how it was designed to observe something and that the last thing it observed is still in memory. And so the final puzzle on the node directory, which is the first, well, the first page of puzzles, and actually that's all that the original game launched with when it was in early access is called stored image decoder. And so the input is a sequence of numbers that represent a stored image. And you have to, you know, decode that back into a picture. And when you run the solution, it draws a few basic pictures of just like black and white and gray lines. And then the final picture kind of like fills in the grid and then starts to like bleed out the grid and expand, take over your whole screen. And it's some kind of weird alien face. And you just see it for a moment and then like the game crashes. Like, you know, it does it like the shutdown animation and the game closes itself. Okay. So it's actually kind of a jump scare. It was actually really freaky the first time it happened. And when you run it again, it doesn't happen again. You only get one chance to see it. But doing that then unlocks TIS Net, which is a second page of puzzles. And I think they're user submitted. And there's a different story well, a continuation of the story that comes out in the debug nodes of that one. So, I mean, I I personally enjoyed it. It was it was kind of like Dark Souls. It's, I know, it's so cliche to say Dark Souls are puzzle games, but I, I mean in the way the storytelling is done. 
So you're seeing these snippets of lore in each puzzle and you have to kind of piece together what happened. And yeah, it's quite interesting because, you know, you're solving these puzzles and as you get further in the game, it, it might take you hours to solve a puzzle. And then your reward for solving that is to unlock more puzzles and you can go into each puzzle and click the debug button and see a tiny snippet of text. You'd be like, oh, that's what this means. Well, oh, that's who this person is. You know, like you have to do a lot of work for like a few minutes of story. But that's what makes it interesting. I didn't realize the second page was user submitted puzzles. Well, I think it's a curated set of user submitted puzzles because you can see in each one, Actually, you probably can't see each one. When you click on the debug node, it's got the story bit. And at the bottom, it says puzzle submitted by and a person's name. So I think they are puzzles that were originally submitted and then probably cleaned up to be thematically consistent. I do actually know how the story ends because I watched a YouTube video of the final puzzle being solved. And there's a similar kind of story thing that plays out, you know, similar to how the first time you solve stored image decoder, it, you know, it shows you that image that something happens when you solve the final puzzle of TIS net, but I didn't actually get there myself. I, I unlocked the first three rows of puzzles. So I think there are 25 puzzles on each page. Uh, yeah. So I unlocked the first three rows on TISnet and I completed all the puzzles in, in the original node directory. So I saw a good chunk of the story, but not all the details. I mean, I kind of would like to finish it, but I can just tell it's going to take a really long time. Some of the puzzles on TISnet just seem so hard, as in, uh, well, as in I look at it and I'm, I just think, I have no idea how to solve that. Like, any way I can think of solving it is going to take way more than 15 instructions per node. Like, I, I can't, off the top of my head, see how it can be done. So, I'm sure I would eventually figure it out, but it would take hours and hours and hours. Easily twice as long as I've already spent on the game. I can't comment. I've not, I've not seen these puzzles. But you're a vet, so you should know. Yeah, I mean, if it's anything like... Well, actually, all of the Zactronics games... I've mentioned before, they seem to follow the kind of same cycle of this is trivial, you know, like this is an easy puzzle, like, you know, why are you insulting my intelligence? To then like, okay, I can see how to do it. It's going to take a bit of work to seriously, are you really asking me to do that? I can see how to do it, but it's going to be hard work. And then finally, like WTF, I can't see how that can be done. And Often I play to the, seriously, are you really asking me to do that point? Or I struggle through that up until the start of WTF, and then I kind of just like fade out. Except for Space Cam, where I just struggled through it, and it was eventually <laughs> worth it. I, I did feel really proud of myself when I finished that game. So another, like I think, a key aspect of TIS-100 are the leaderboards. Yes. Though there's no global leaderboard. Actually, no, there kind of is a global leaderboard. It just doesn't have names on. Yeah, it, there's a histogram. So there are three measures. There's the number of cycles you use, the number of instructions you use, and the number of nodes. 
So it will show a histogram of well, how many cycles, instructions, and nodes in three separate graphs other people used to solve this puzzle. And then it will show where you fall on that histogram. So if you're further to the left, it means you solved it, you know, in fewer cycles, so faster, or with fewer instructions, so more efficiently, or fewer nodes, so more compactly. Yes. And I think it's really insightful that they've decided against the global leaderboard, right? Because that's meaningless to everyone. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't show you the names of who has done these other solutions. It just shows you, like, statistically, people's solutions have kind of fallen like this. So, you know, most people's solution ends up around here. And then where is your solution? Is it better than average? Is it worse than average? Or sometimes there'll be multiple peaks on the histogram because there's, like, several different obvious ways of doing it. And so, you know, depending on which way you think of, you'll fall on one of those peaks. It is very interesting because, you know, you... you you finally solve the puzzle and you get to see, like, is my solution abnormally good? Is it abnormally bad? And then it does actually show you your Steam friends' scores. So we can see each other's cycle counts and instructions and node counts. But I think generally our scores have been relatively comparable. Yeah, they have been. It's been quite interesting. You wanted to invite anyone listening who who had played this game and wanted to compare with our scores? Yeah, I'm curious. Did anyone else actually play this game for the book club? Or is anyone listening, did they play this game previously? I mean, if you want to be Steam friends, we can be Steam friends. You can see how Ting and I did. Yeah, and I'm actually, I'm going to keep playing this. You're going to keep playing it? Are you going to go back and look at the story? Yes, I am. So that gives you a feel for the game, right? But let's go into personal highlights or observations. I think... One of the first things I wrote in my personal notes for the game is the commas are optional. This is a huge productivity increase because in the instruction manual, it says that you know the, the commands usually take several parameters and you're supposed to put a comma between them. So, you know, you'll say like move up, down to say, you know, to move some data from the top input to the bottom input. It says like move up, comma, space, down. But the comma is optional. I, I figured this out relatively early, luckily. But you realise that it's not comma space, you can just have comma. Oh, okay. So I suppose it's not really saving any space. No. Space bar is easier to hit, though, than the comma. But it, the speed is not the problem here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, I still stand by it being a huge productivity increase. <laughs> F commas. Who cares about commas? I do wish you could put more than one command on a line. Like, because some of the commands are really short, like swap, like SWP or save, like SAV. And sometimes you want to do, you know, sometimes I want to do a swap and then an add or something. But you have to use two separate lines for that. And I was like, this is so inefficient. Like, if only I could put two commands on the same line, then I'd actually have space to fit my program in. But you can't. 
Yes, but no. So I wanted to say that I got to puzzle 21, which is the summing of the last three numbers and also the summing of the last five numbers to produce two outputs. Yes. So the puzzle is called signal window filter and you get fed a sequence of numbers and you need to output the result of summing the previous three numbers to one and the sum of the previous five numbers to another output. And you should assume that the previous numbers were zero if there were no preceding numbers. So like the first number is the first number because it's as if the preceding numbers were zero. And then the second number is the sum of the first two numbers because it's as if the third number was zero. Whatever. So that's as far as you got. Yeah. So I did half of it. I did say the easy half. You also reiterated, yes, the easy half thing. The easy half is really easy. I mean, just, just writing a solution that just outputs a moving sum of the previous three numbers. I think I did in like 10 minutes or something. Like, you know, it was really quick. And then trying to adapt that solution. So it did three and five. I found actually pretty hard. Like I skipped this puzzle and came back to it. Interestingly, you did add minus which i did consider how else would you do it i mean this is interesting i i do think it's it's interesting that we do see things in quite different ways i just use a stack i pass between the stack because a stack if you pass into another stack becomes in order if you know what i mean let me say that properly because someone technical is going to be listening if i pass a stack uh, a list into a stack and then pass into another stack I can pull it out of the second stack in order. First in, first out. Yes. And then from that, I can do the summing and remove the last one. I see. Something like that along the way, yes. Wow, this is intriguing. This is also, when I said it's simple to do a solution that handles just the moving sum of the three case, my solution was totally different to that. In fact, my eventual solution doesn't use the stack nodes at all. Yeah, and actually the problem I'm having with my solution is I can't fit what I need into the node. Otherwise it would work. Yeah, it's really the space that causes the problems. Like There are a lot of puzzles where I think, okay, I can do it like this. And then I realize I need one more instruction in order to actually you know, be able to run my solution. And then sometimes I can find a way of saving one instruction and... It just can just about squeeze it in. And other times I was just, I realized I had to take a completely different approach because there's no way to fit what I want to do into one node. I actually found the stack nodes kind of a double-edged sword because they're very convenient in some ways, but it's very hard to make multiple nodes cooperate to read and write from a stack. Like it's way too easy to corrupt the stack. So where did Mike get to? So as I mentioned previously, I finished the first page of puzzles and then I did some of the TISnet puzzles. So I mostly just went through them and read the debug logs and then some of the TISnet puzzles, I just immediately saw a way to solve it. And my solution wasn't necessarily very fast or elegant. Relative to the the histogram. In fact, yeah, some of them, some of them are way off to the right of the histogram because I'm just doing a very naive solution, but it works. So for the ones where I saw an obvious solution, I just wrote that solution 
And even though I got a terrible result on the histogram, it's like, whatever, I'm just trying to get it done. I'm not trying to make an elegant piece of beautiful code that will, you know, be put on a pedestal and be passed down through the ages. I'm just trying to write something that works. So I did those simple puzzles and then all that's left are ones where it's either I can see how to do it, but it's a real chore because I, you know, trying to fit my solution in is really hard and it involves a lot of iterative tinkering and fiddling around and it takes a long time or literally WTF, I can't see how you could even solve that. Did you spend any time optimizing your solutions and moving yourself to the left of the histogram? Yes. I think it's fun. It's really fun. It's actually also really fun when there are other people you know who are playing the game. I think this is the first time I've actually played a Zactronics game and one of my Steam friends has also been playing it. So this was a novelty, having a fellow programmer to compete against. It's terrible because sometimes I'm just targeting your solu- the benchmark that you've set. So if you've used six nodes, I might immediately my, my base solution has to use at most six nodes. <laughs> you've definitely commented someone's like, oh yeah, well, you used more nodes than me, you know. I used six and you used seven. So of course my solution's better. I was like, bitch, my solution's twice as fast as yours. It's fine. It's like code golf, right? You know code golf? No, I don't know code golf. Well, you know in golf, you're trying to put the ball in the hole in the lowest number of strokes. Yeah. Then code golf is where you get like a programming task and you're trying to do it in like the shortest amount of code. I don't know. I think it was popular in the 90s or something. I don't know. Maybe something Perl programmers did. For some reason, I'm aware of it. It's not like I'm good at it. I mean, I was a Java coder. That's like, you're instantly going to lose there because of static void main. I die a little bit every time you say that. We we know we can still know how things work and do things properly, you know. Well, we've just been writing assembly for like <laughs> a dozen or so hours, right? Albeit fake assembly on a weird computer from another universe. The next thing I'm going to say is quite technical, but we'll still cover it quickly. So I use the no-op operation just to idle a node to wait for something else. And that's how I handled coordination between my nodes. But you didn't do this. I, I found this really interesting because when we were chatting about our approaches to solving the puzzles and you mentioned this, again, I found this really mind-blowing because it's totally different from what I was doing. I I don't think I've actually... In fact, only once have I used the NOP instruction. Actually, interestingly, for that signal window filter puzzle that you were you know as far which is as far as you got that's the only time i've actually used the nop instruction every other time my solutions are generally relying on synchronization but you're not signaling you're not just sending an empty number to someone to say no i know i am I'm, i'm so my code there's a bunch of nodes. I mean, it's not single-threaded because they 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 are doing stuff, but they are deliberately written to block when they get to a certain point. So they will deliberately run some computation and then will try and read a number. So it'll be like 
it will do something like move down nil. So it doesn't even care what the value it reads is. It's going to throw it away. But it will stop executing until someone passes it a number from a particular direction, and then it will carry on. And I use that because, well, mostly to avoid corrupting the stack. So a lot of the solutions that involved the stack, I would do some stuff to manipulate the stack, and then I couldn't fit everything I needed to do in one node. So there'd be another node that was also adjacent to that stack that could do more work on it. And the first node would do some subsection of the algorithm and then signal the second node to do its bit of work because I couldn't fit everything in one node, for example. And I couldn't have them just run together because they'd be just messing up the stack. That's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I was doing this even before the stack nodes were involved. So I think it just must be the way I think. It's quite intriguing. I mean, the way you're doing it is theoretically faster especially when it comes to real computers i know that if you're writing really fast code you know you don't want to block or to wait or have to synchronize with locks and stuff you you know you, know, you want to just spin until it's your turn to do something yeah but yeah i mean that's error prone it's just asking for trouble man but that's that's what we're getting to now that's how we um that's how we keep ourselves in the job <laughs> by writing <laughs> yeah. crazy code that's just like a hundred gears meshing together precisely and if even one is out of line the whole machine explodes in a glorious fireball yes but it means we're doing things 10 times faster than you know i say 10 times it's an arbitrary number we're just doing things faster this is why i just drink coffee these days <laughs> Just drink coffee and throw my opinion. Uh, I think you just synchronize here. Just signal. Just signal this. It's trivial. <laughs> it's trivial. It's trivial. It's trivial to write a really slow solution <laughs> that's really to the far right of the histogram. No, but seriously, I, you know, I have played a lot of Zactronics games, and I think I used to get really hung up on writing an efficient, elegant solution. And I would put a lot of effort into making my first solution be really, really good. And then I would discover I was still to the right of the histogram. And so I realized that it's just not worth it. Now I just try and make something that works and then I'll optimize it. And I feel like it's a way better way of working. And, you know, our solutions are comparable in terms of, well, in all three measures generally. So, and also I finished the game, you know, <laughs> well, I finished the first page anyway. Although to be fair, you're playing in like 30 minute chunks between parenting duties. Yeah. So that's not conducive to writing great code. But you say that you can also, it's good to walk away from your problems and have a think about it. And let your subconscious process it. But it does mean you can't be too crazy in your solutions because even you will lose track of what the hell you were trying to do 24 hours ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the horrible thing about this is because it's so terse, you can't, you can't like write any comments. Like yes. there is a comment character that you can use to denote something as a comment. And you can also like do a double hash and then it will name the solution but like there's no space to do that 
right? Like, you know, in other programming languages where you're less space constrained, you might think, okay, I'm going to solve it like this. And you'll write some comments to like help you remember the general flow of what you're trying to achieve. And then you'll write the code that implements you know, that conceptual design. But here, you can't do that because if you put in a comment, well, that's an instruction you could have written that now you can't. But thinking about it, you could just put the comment in an adjacent node. I mean, you could do that. I mean, you could also write it on a piece of paper, you know. Who's going to do that? Adjacent node seems sensible. <sighs> there might not be an adjacent node. There might not be, no. Uh, I'm trying to, you know... Uh, on the whole, this has been really well put together. That's my, you know, that's what I really wanted to say. Yeah, it's a very simple set of rules that actually produces quite a rich and complicated game. I mean, it's not just about the code. Even the physical layout of where you put the code is important because the nodes can only communicate with adjacent nodes. And there have definitely been puzzles where it's been like oh i wish this node was over here because then it would be much easier but instead i've got to like thread this you know sequence of data through like five other nodes to get back to where i needed to be i, I mean i can't imagine how you write puzzles for a game like this with a good difficulty curve because i think it's really not obvious to me how do you just come up with something? I mean, I guess the early puzzles are all quite straightforward. They're like traditional programming tasks to do with a very limited set of instructions, like multiply two numbers. But some of the other things that ask you to do are just bizarre. Well, you could just, you just need to produce the puzzles and producing the curve, you can just get play testers to determine where they sit on the, on the difficulty scale. And then you just order them accordingly. I guess so. The wisdom of crowds. Yeah. Did you find the secret puzzle? Did I know there was a story? <laughs> well, the secret puzzle is referred to in the achievements. So I thought you might look at those at least. No, the achievements. Talking about the achievements, they just seem depressing. The achievements are actually pretty interesting. So most of them are related to the first few puzzles and you just have to solve the first few puzzles in a really weird and obtuse way like the very first puzzle is really simple it's literally just like pass data from a node at the top to the node at the bottom and so you'll do it really fast but the achievement that's connected to it is to take like a million cycles i think to solve the puzzle instead or over a million cycles so you know you have to produce a really terrible solution that still technically solves the puzzle. Or there's another one, which I guess the achievement is quite clever because it's trying to train you into you know thinking differently. So the naive solution takes over 100 cycles. And to get the achievement, you have to solve the puzzle in under 100 cycles. And the achievement's called Parallelize. So it's kind of hinting at you that you need to divide and conquer the work between two parallel streams of execution and then merge them at the end. Did you get any of these achievements? Yeah, I got a few of them. So I, I and I got the first two. I got the one about making a horrible solution. I got the one about parallelizing it. I didn't try and do most of the others. Like I, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then, yeah, I didn't try and do it. 
it, it probably would actually be quite fun and an interesting challenge to try and do them. But, you know, I, I had limited time. So anyway, the secret puzzle. So the achievement's called Illegal Eagle and the icon is an eagle and it literally just says solve the secret puzzle. I actually only found this by accident basically yesterday. <laughs> so in the instruction manual there's this reference to you know check tamper proof certification and I pushed F2 which is the button but it didn't do anything. But it was while I was trying to solve a puzzle. And then I happened to press it while I was actually at the puzzle selection screen. And then it brings up another window that says, you know, Department of Quantum something something tamper protection seal. And then there's an eagle in that window. And then I clicked on the eagle and there was the puzzle. So that's how you find it. And then the puzzle itself is quite funny because the name of the puzzle and the instructions are all kind of corrupted and garbled. So you've got to kind of try and figure out what it's trying to say or just look at the inputs and the required outputs and just guess slash reverse engineer what it needs to do. And if you solve it, you get another one of those debug text logs that tells you a little bit more story. And that's all you get? And you get an achievement. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I'm doing it for the story and the achievement. You literally played every puzzle in order then. You never skipped ahead if you got stuck. I never got that stuck. I, ne oh, I didn't feel like I got that stuck. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I skipped around a bit. And Sequence Sorter was the last puzzle on the first page of puzzles that I solved. So it's actually the penultimate puzzle. But I found it way harder than all the others. Like, way, way, way harder. I think I had solved all of the other puzzles, except for this one, in around 10 hours or less. And then this puzzle alone took me two or three hours. I mean, having said that, it was mostly just a massive slog trying to find a way to cram it all in. And then when I finally had something that worked, in inverted commas, I ran it, and then it just, like, gave the wrong output at the end because i realized <laughs> well, okay so the puzzle is to sort sequences of numbers so you're given a sequence of numbers and each sequence ends with a zero and so you have to output that sequence in ascending order and then finally the zero to indicate the end of the sequence and right at the very end of the inputs is a zero length sequence so literally zero to indicate the end of a sequence and then another zero to indicate this is immediately the end of the sequence, so we have to output is a zero. And my solution couldn't handle a zero-length sequence, and I had to find, you know, after spending hours figuring out how to cram the whole thing in, I then had to cram even more in to put in a special edge case to handle a zero-length sequence. So in the end, I had three nodes that were literally completely full of code. So, you know, it was right on the edge. And I was thinking, you know, wow, if the second set of test cases contains a sequence with negative numbers, I quit. You know, because I, I just used all the negative numbers to handle like signaling between the nodes. And so if I got, you know, if there was a sequence that required me to sort including negative numbers, I would just not be able to do it. I would literally have to throw away the whole solution and start again. But fortunately, that didn't happen. I ran it and 
boom, solved. Yay. We need to share our solutions at some point. I will ask for them. I don't want to be spoiled just yet. Okay. Yeah, you can you can look at what I did. I also actually want to look at some spoilers because I'm sure there are... Well, actually, I know there are way better ways of doing it than the way I did it because I can see on the histogram that there are way better ways of doing it. So I'm really curious, what are these other ways of achieving you know, this result? Because I did actually write out in my notes conceptually how I solved this puzzle. And it was just really long. It was like a really long and boring explanation. So I'm not going to go into it, but there must be a much more elegant and quick way to do it. But if you're using, you know, there's always the, if you use more nodes, you could potentially do things quicker because you're splitting out the problem. I mean, maybe. So, you know, you may, you, so you may need multiple solutions to achieve a low score in each of the three measures. Yes, that is quite true. But I think like a core logical block of a lot of the solutions towards the end, well, towards the end of the first page of puzzles and also in the TIS net directory is here's two numbers, which one of them is greater? So like output them in, you know, ascending or descending order. And my way of doing that requires quite a lot of code and more than one node. So maybe there's a way better way of doing it that I haven't thought of. And if if so, that would make my puzzle considerably quicker and also considerably smaller. But, you know, if there is that way of doing it, I haven't thought of it, so... Yet. Yet. Maybe ever. Am I going to finish this game? Who knows? Ever. <laughs> 100% finish this game, that is. I, f- I feel like I've finished it enough, you know? So you sent me a link to Zachbath's talk at Google. Talk was titled Zectronics 10 Years of Terrible Games. So this talk is actually from 2017. It's before he released Opus Magnum and Exapunks. And Eliza then. Oh, and Eliza, yes, of course. Though that's not a programming puzzle game, but... Yeah, he talks about his programming puzzle. Actually, no, he talks about all of the all of the games because he includes Ironclad Tactics too, and it's about an hour long. It's quite interesting, actually. I enjoyed watching it and hearing the insights into how he came to make these games. You know, and some of them were really interesting. Like, you know, he made Space Chem and it was popular, and then it was popular enough. And successful enough for him to quit his job. And then he thought, right, I'm going to make an even better game. And made Ironclad Tactics. And it was actually really unpopular. Because, I don't know, it just didn't do well. I mean, it, I mean, I bought it and I haven't played it. So, I don't even know what that means. I guess it's because it was so different from Space Camp. You know, maybe people, people probably wanted him to make a programming puzzle game. And then he made a tactical... Is it even a tactical RPG? I don't even know. So it wasn't what people expected. I highlighted an interesting comment that he made. Educational games versus fun games. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. 
This was funny because he didn't used to think this until he tried to make educational games, and then he realised <laughs> educational games are fun games. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I think he mentions that he was at GDC and someone at a talk basically said this, and then he put his hand up and was like, "I'm sure that's not true. You can make an educational game that's fun." And then he went off and tried to make a game about starch metabolism and realized <laughs> you can make a game educational fun. And it's just like choosing where along that spectrum you put your game. And yeah, so he, he makes a point not to say that it's how he views things. It's, no, it's not, like you said, it's not mapped one-to-one to a real system. Yeah, okay. So his insight into why you basically can't make an educational game fun. Like, you know, they are two... The reason they are two opposite ends of the spectrum is because making a game educational, I guess it's just too many constraints. You know, if you're trying to make a game educational, then the rules of the game are fixed because they have to match reality. And he gives the example of, like, if you were making a game about programming in Arduino and there was just some horrible edge case... Well, too bad, because that's how an Arduino works. So you need to make it work like that, even if it's really not fun and it's really painful to have to work around it. Whereas if you're making a game that's meant to be fun, as he was with Shenzhen IO, it's still about programming, you know, embedded systems and DSPs and stuff. But if the game isn't fun and he he said that you know there were problems with the way they handled synchronization in the game and it just wasn't fun or people just didn't get it so he just changed it and maybe it was less realistic but now the game is way more fun so that was the right decision to make and then something that surprised me i had no idea what zach bath actually looked like before watching this video i always imagined that he was going to be some portly beardy guy and very opinionated and he's not (laughs) like i kind of thought he would be like jonathan blow in you know in his like very strong opinions kind of sense and quite you know intimidating yeah but he's not he's like this (laughs) i think i'm actually more like him than i realized like he he gets very excitable and he was like waving his arms about and just, yeah, he was, I like, was, whatever. Really, he whatever. was just like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's just like <laughs> casually swearing in the middle of the talk. I, yeah, I was surprised, but I guess I can see why I'm on the same wavelength now. Cause I think the way we talk is surprisingly similar. And there's some other interesting insights actually, cause he mentions, you know, lessons he learned from space cam you shouldn't make the game just have a single path because if someone gets stuck on a puzzle, now they're hard blocked until they solve that puzzle. And like, that's definitely a problem I had with Space Cam. Like it, you know, there was just one puzzle that took me so long to solve. And then the subsequent puzzles, I didn't find as difficult, but I had no choice but to just keep banging my head against that particular puzzle because Space Cam only gives you, you know, one puzzle at a time. But then again, another lesson he said he learned from Space Cam was that the story needed to be better and that you needed a a better reason for doing stuff. I don't really understand that personally, that criticism. Like, I actually think Space Cam's story was good and I never felt like it was arbitrary why I was doing stuff. Because, like, you know, he gives the example of, like, 
you get told to make a settling. So now I'm making a settling, but why am I making a settling? And it's just like, because you're an engineer working at a chemical engineering firm, you know, they tell you to make a settling. So you make a settling. You don't go like, uh, excuse me, why are we making a settling? Why, why aren't we making, you know, cornflakes instead? You know, you have to do your job. Your job in space chem is to be a chemical engineer. Personally, I didn't think this was particularly a valid criticism, but obviously he took it to heart. Did Space Chem come out before TIS? Yes. Yeah, Space Chem is his first Zack-like game. I really think Space Chem is really good. Although I might just be saying that because it's the first one I played. Maybe if I went back to it, I would feel differently. But I think Space Chem is really good. The one thing Space Chem has that I didn't think any of the others had were boss battles. And I really enjoyed those. Though, now I think there might be some in Infinifactory that got added after, uh, you know, I stopped playing it. So maybe in the subsequent patches of Infinifactory, they added some. In which case, I should really go back and play Infinifactory. I was only made aware of this by watching this talk and him showing some stuff later on in Infinifactory. I was like, wait, what? And also, the things people did in Infinifactory are crazy. Because he showed off, you know things people did that surprised him in his games. Though he does also comment that TAS 100 is like completely impenetrable. You know, like if you look at a cool Space Chem solution or Infinifactory solution, you know, someone can just see it animated and be like, oh, that's cool. Whereas if you just look at someone's TAS 100 solution, it means nothing. And you can watch it in action and it still means nothing. Like you literally have to go line by line and try and piece together what the algorithm is, is it's like not a fun game to watch. Is he still working on Infinifactory? Is that the main? I don't think so. I think Infinifactory is done. Infinifactory came out like a month before TAS 100. And, you know, they, I think they did extend the campaign quite a lot, but I'm pretty sure it's done. Although, I mean, it's a sandbox game or it, it can be a sandbox game. So... Maybe you could say it's never done, but yeah, the you know the campaign is finished. Do we know what is being worked on next? Well, Eliza, which is done now. I'm not sure. I don't know. I wonder if there's like demand for an AI, a programming puzzle game where you develop an AI, but then how would you even do that? It just sounds like a good idea, but probably in reality... It's not. I think something that was funny at the talk is someone asked him the question, you know, your games are all about solving puzzles with programming, but they're single player. You know, you're trying to solve a puzzle versus the machine or versus the inputs and get the right outputs. But have you ever thought about making an adversarial game where you write code and the other person writes code and like, you know, your code dukes it out? And he's like, Oh, that's a good idea, you know. And that's something that's in Exapunks. So the tenuous connection is that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like writing an AI, like you you write some AI for your bots and your friends write it too. And then you run the code and see who, well, who battled it out and won. Yeah. Who got a higher score. So if that's what you mean, he kind of did it. And there are other games that, much more explicitly do that too. He does. I don't know. I need to see Exapunks. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Exapunks is the latest evolution of TIS 100, you know. Shenzhen IO extended a bit, Exapunks extends it a bit in a slightly different direction. If you enjoyed this, then, yeah, you should play some of the others. It's too much of a time sink, though. Yeah, that's also definitely true. It really, really appeals to my inner programmer. I just think it's funny. It's like, oh, I've spent a hard day programming. I'm going to go home and do some fun programming. <laughs> well, this is all the programming I do. <laughs> yeah. Are you, have you also joined the coffee drinking and telling people your opinion side of the fence? Not, I don't know. I feel, let's not talk about this. this <laughs> That's is, too I'm depressing. Not I'm not programming. <laughs> I'm just not programming. Okay, so final thoughts on TIS 100? It didn't look very appealing, but actually, looks can deceive. I thought this was a really good choice and a really great gift. <laughs> yeah, because it was your choice for the book club game, so you're patting yourself on the back. But it was my decision to give it to you. I... I think I sent it to you just because it looked so terrible, actually. <laughs> Thinking back to it, I think I bought it because it was a Zachtronics game and it also just looked so impenetrable that I was like, I'm going to send this to Ting too. But then we never played it. Neither of us played it. Just prove how good a programmer I am, how superior I am. Well, in the end, it turned out we're about the same. How sad. I thought I was much better than you. <laughs> Neither of us is really trying, I don't think. I don't think either of us is really, really trying to outdo the other. No, no. Luckily. Also, there's always the nuclear option of going on the internet and finding someone's really good solution <laughs> and just pasting it in. But that's <laughs> cheating. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I actually really would like to go and really finish all of the Zack-like games. But yeah. The only one I've ever really, really finished is Space Chem because they do get much, much, much harder and they become a massive time sink. And it's also, you know, they're not the kind of games where you can kind of just zone out or play it with your friends and have a chat. Like you really need razor focus as the puzzles get harder. You know, they you you actually really need to do some serious thinking. So, yeah, making the time is hard. So what's the next book club game? So we're actually going to stick on the Zachtronics theme and play Eliza, which is very surprisingly a visual novel. So yes, Zachtronics, a company famous for its programming puzzle games, has made a visual novel. But it's rated very highly and I bought it because as I was just like, a Zachtronics game? Of course I'm going to buy it. And then I was like, wait, a visual novel? Luckily, I actually quite like visual novels. So the next book club game is Eliza. I've never played a visual novel. You played her story. Yes. Which is very sort of kind of visual novel-esque. Not really, though. Yeah, so I think the game is pretty short. So we will probably talk about it in November. So that's it. And that is it. We were Lost Levels Club. We still are Lost Levels Club. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can find us on email. Mike.and.ting at lostlevels.club.
on Twitter at Lost Levels Club on Twitch as Lost Levels Club and on Reddit slash r slash Lost Levels Club. So, Michael, what are you grateful for today? Well, the silver lining to doing all these flights is I've watched loads of movies. I've watched so many movies. I've watched more movies in the past few weeks than I have like the whole rest of the year, I think. So I finally watched Spider-Man Far From Home. I watched Aladdin. I watched Yesterday. I actually really enjoyed all of them. And it made me realize, you know, like music is like hacking your brain, you know, listening to the songs in, well, particularly in Aladdin and yesterday. And I was like, oh, I feel optimism. I feel, you know, like happy and blah. It didn't last though. So what did you learn? You should listen to optimistic music. You should listen to the yesterday soundtrack, the Aladdin soundtrack, and not listen to my melancholy playlist. <laughs> yeah. Morrissey. <laughs> I literally have a melancholy playlist. Yeah, okay, fine. But it's downloaded to Spotify. I can play it when there's no internet. Well, you can also set the... <laughs> you're just making trouble for me, okay? I know what you're doing. <laughs> okay. So Michael says bye. Bye-bye.